Good morning, Village Church East. It is good to see you this morning. Welcome to a uh, to the end, the either the end of a long week or the beginning of another great week. So you can take that however you want to. Some of you, uh, some of you have spent a lot of time at home with your kids this this week. Uh, how many of you are ready for the, this week to end finally? No, none of you. You love being home with your your, your own kids, did you? Good, you should have had mine. Uh, so uh, it is interesting, the, the weather that we've been having. But uh, today we get to gather together and we get to talk a little bit more about this topic that we've been discussing, which is uh, Explore God. Now, if you're new to this, uh, we have been joining with about nine, a little over 900 other churches in the Chicagoland area, and we are working through a series called Explore God. The purpose of this is to get you... Uh, to give you opportunities to bring your friends in uh, and discuss some very um, straightforward and fair questions that the world around you may have, including your friends. And the questions are as follows. So over seven Sundays, we're dealing with all these questions. Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? That was last week. Uh, Today, is Christianity too narrow? Next week, is Jesus really God? Is the Bible reliable? Sixth week and the seventh week, can I, how can I know God personally? And so if you've had uh, interactions with friends or family members and they've asked you any questions like these, the reason that we're doing this is to give you an opportunity to bring them here. So our hope is that you feel comfortable to do that. There's actually, uh, in the back, there are cards that you can actually use to invite them as well. Um, but the purpose of all the different churches doing this together is so that uh, there's a lot of advertisement going on and Hopefully somebody will ask you or you can have an opportunity to ask them and say, have you seen the Explore God advertisements around the Chicagoland area? Well, our church is doing it too. Why don't you come and join us? So that's our goal. If you'd like to get in on that, we're trying to make this as easy as possible for you to, uh, uh, to get some of these really uh, powerfully fair and challenging questions answered. I've enjoyed actually doing a, a, lo- a lot of these uh, messages already, and today might be my favorite, actually. So uh, we'll see if it's yours as well. Um, let me also say that uh, if you are uh, new to Christianity, you're searching, you're just kind of wondering, what is this all about? Uh, you have walked into a really, really good setting uh, because not only do we answer these questions here at church, but you can jump on the exploregod.com website and they have tons of other questions that you could ask as well and get, your, uh, get some answers. You may or may not like them, but... Uh, we try to address all of these questions. And big push, if you are not in a community group already, this is a great time to jump in because community groups let you ask questions about what you hear on Sundays. So when, you, when we do a message on Sunday, you might have some questions. You can either text those questions uh, to the sermon cues at w, uh, VC East Sermon at 555-888, you just type in 555-888, um, and you type in VCE Sermons, and you'll get into a link where you can ask any questions that you want about the messages. Uh, and then those questions that we get on this link are going to be handled on the podcast, uh, which I've been involved in over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to be doing again this week. Uh, and we've got a lot of really good questions. Um, so you can get those, you can even ask a question this morning if you wanted to. Uh, so you do have my permission to text if you'd like to during the message. I'm assuming you're going to be texting questions. Or if you want a live experience, you can jump into our community groups. We have three community groups going on right now. Uh, one is on Thursday night. One is on, 
That's my mind. Monday night, that's mine. I should know that. And one is on Sundays right after church. And you can jump in on any of those community groups. Uh, just go onto our website, w, uh, www.vceast.org, and you can uh, jump in there and sign up for a, uh, a community group. If you're not in one, I really would encourage you to get into one. My prayer, uh, Megan was mentioning how we like to pray here. One of my ongoing prayers is that we would begin two more community groups out of this uh, sermon series. So my hope is that you will take advantage of that and we can start even another community group very soon. All right, you ready to go? All right. <coughs> Let me get that out of the way first. Here we go. What's that? All right, here we go. Is Christianity too narrow? How many of you think Christianity is too narrow? Let's be honest. How many of you think Christianity is too narrow? How many of you think that the world thinks Christianity is too narrow? What do you think? All right, a lot of hands for that. All right, so, so I'm preaching to the choir, obviously, this morning. All right, here's the problem. From the start, that question, is Christianity too narrow, is doomed with a presupposition. And the presupposition is this. We live in a culture that says nothing should be narrow. So the minute you say that something should be narrow, you already are entering into a challenging conversation with a group of people around you that believe that nothing should be narrow. Everything should be examined, everything should be appreciated, everything should be validated for those who believe it. That's the culture in which we live. In this culture, <coughs> excuse me, in this culture, we call that pluralistic Gnosticism. Now everybody say that together. Here we go. Ready? Pluralistic Gnosticism. Who would like to explain what pluralistic Gnosticism is? It's just two words stuck together, really, is what it is. All right? You can call it Gnostic pluralism if you'd like to. But let me explain to you what pluralistic Gnosticism is because you are in the middle of it. You may not know what those words mean, but you live it Every single day. You see it on your TV. You send your kids and they hear about it at school. You get it at work. It's everywhere around you. Pluralistic Gnosticism or Gnostic pluralism. Here we go. Pluralism actually came to life in the late 90s and it was called something completely different. So for all of you that are a little older like me, you may have heard this called multiculturalism. How many of you have heard that word before? Oh yes, we're familiar with that word. Multiculturalism is where pluralism had its roots. And what multiculturalism used to mean was that we should appreciate every ethnic background, every cultural background, every belief system, and learn how to live together in community. That doesn't sound bad, does it? That's multiculturalism. One community with multi-cultures living in it. The problem is... In less than 20 years, 25 years, that definition of multiculturalism has turned into pluralism. Pluralism is the theory that there are more than one or two kinds of ultimate reality. You see how that changed? There are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. In other words, your reality might be different from my reality. Which reality is right? Both of them. That's what pluralism is. Multiculturalism has transformed into not only the view that we need to accept each other, cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, all those things, which isn't bad, to the point where now not only do we accept them, 
but we validate them. They are true. Now, you need to know we live in a world that actually applauds that. They love that idea. And this is why when you introduce the idea that Christianity is too narrow, people will naturally say, yes, it is. Because Christianity is not pluralistic. Let me tell you what Gnosticism is. Oh, by the way, pluralism literally says no one has a handle on what is really true. Gnosticism is from the word gnosto, and if you know Greek, you will love that, and if you don't, you couldn't care less. Gnosto, or this idea of Gnosticism, literally interpreted means something I know, or I've learned. Gnostics were people that prided themselves on what they had learned. It doesn't, re- it doesn't refer to the simple idea that I know Beth, all right? You may know Beth, my wife. I know Beth, but that's not what we're talking about. Gnosticism is an understanding of Beth that is deeper than just knowing who she is or what her name is. It's the idea that there's almost an esoteric aspect to knowing Beth, almost a connection with the divine. Gnostics believe that you can know something to a level, to a depth, that is more than just knowing these are glasses, this is an iPad, my wife's name is Beth. Gnostics believe that there is a depth of knowing that births a reality. Gnosis refers to the matter, uh, Gnostics, by the way, typically would call matter evil and say that true knowledge is receptive to mystical or esoteric experiences. And the result of Gnostic pluralism, basically, is you can create a reality where you can know God yourself. All right? Gnostic pluralism, the world in which we live, says you can create a reality where you get to know God yourself, basically, on your own terms. You get to define who he is. My reality, they would also say, my reality is just as valid as your reality. You ever heard that before? That's pluralism. And my reality is whatever makes sense to me, that's Gnosticism. These two phrases are very popular in our world today. They can be put a whole bunch of different ways, but the reason they look really familiar to you is because you live in a world that is pluralistic Gnostics, that is Gnostic pluralistics, all right? So, if that's too deep for you, Let me just make it really simple, because I really like or try to make things simple. So I need three volunteers. Chris, you're going to volunteer? Super duper. All right, I need two more volunteers. All right, Gene, you're going to volunteer? One more volunteer. Kathy, you're going to volunteer. Stay where you are. I don't even need you to move. Don't even need you to move. Here we go. Chris, Gina, and Kathy, we are going to try and figure out who the true Craig really is. All right? So you've got to figure out who Craig is, all right? Well, who is the real Craig? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> all right, here you go. What I'd like you to do is to read up on the screen, and we're going to vote, and we're going to find out who the real Craig is. Chris, go. Yeah, out loud. Go ahead. Yeah, read the whole thing. Do you want a microphone so everybody can hear you? <laughs> yeah, let's tape this. Let's save this. For, uh, yeah. What are you doing, Brian? You're, you're taking... Eating bonbons back there? All right, let her rip. 
Craig Jarvis was born on June 27, 1970 to Daryl and Lynn Jarvis. Craig is Canadian. Craig is married to Beth Jarvis. Green card. And they have four daughters named Abby, Hannah, Karis, and Rebecca. Craig is a follower of Jesus. Craig loves to fly fish, golf, and eat dish, deep dish Chicago pizza from Giordano's. Uh, nicely done. All right. That's your first definition of Craig. Here is your second definition of Craig. She on? Uh, Brian, can you up, up uh, the microphone a little bit? Okay. There you go. Craig Jarvis was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and left on the steps of a county, oh, a country music bar by his real parents when he was first born. Mm-hmm. He was adopted by two country music stars. Ooh, who were they? That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. Craig spent his life on tour with his parents until he broke into country music himself. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Craig has written several popular country music songs. Loves to square dance. Let's see. <laughs> and play his harmonica. There you go. Thank you, Gina. That's, that's Craig Jarvis. All right? And here is the final definition. Craig Jarvis was born in Athens in 450 B.C. He studied at the foot of Plato and tried to break through into philosophy. Unsuccessful, Craig went into beet farming with a German fellow named... Shrewd. Shrewd. Unfortunately, no one in Greece likes beets. So poor and malnourished from a steady diet of beets, Craig died at the age of 32. There you go. Three... (laughs) Isn't that sad? Yeah. Shrewd Farms. Maybe you've heard about it. (laughs) Now let's think slowly and logically about this. Everything I gave you up front might have sent you into the stratosphere. This, however, brings it right down to where we're at. Simple question. Are all of these true? No, nobody's confused. No. You want to vote? No. So all of them can't be true. Correct. All right. How many me's are there? Now, there might be people with my same name, right? But how many me's are How many Craig Jarvises are there? One. There's only one. What do all of these Craig Jarvises might have in common? Well, they're all human. They're all male. But that's about it, right? Other than that, they are not the same person. Just because there's commonality, does that make any of these or all of these true? Just because there's commonality, that, does this make all of these real? Of course not. How would you respond if someone said, listen, all these Craigs are basically the same? You'd probably laugh, right? And you'd probably say, Craig doesn't know anything about philosophy, so it's no wonder he would die a poor beet farmer. Like you, you would say, that's ridiculous. All these Craigs can't possibly be talking about the same person. Ravi Zacharias says it this way. Culture says all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. But the truth is, all religions are fundamentally different and superficially the same. There's only one option because there's only one God. There's only one truth because there's only one God. There's only one way because there's only one God. Now, next week, we're going to be talking about which God is it. So if you're interested in uh, uh, taking this conversation further, next week is the link to this week. But before we get to that, let's talk about our Gnostic pluralistic society. Most people in our society are comfortable finding the one true God or making up the reality of their own God? A or B? How many vote for A? How many people vote for B? Yes. 
Because in our society, people would rather define their own God, in other words, define their own Craig Jarvis, than search for the real one. The problem is our starting point always centers on ourselves and our own experiences. So the question really is, not is Christianity too narrow? The question is, what do you do when you are presented with the biblical story of God? The question's wrong. Let's talk about the story of God. Let's find out how God describes himself in Scripture, in the Bible. And then we'll decide if there's many ways to God or only one. Christianity is the story of the gospel. Gospel is literally good news. Do you know where gospel comes from? It's from an old English word means good spell. Good spell means good news. That's where you get the word gospel from. It's actually from a Greek word, which is euangelion, which literally means the same thing. The good news. And where do you find the gospels? What are the gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why isn't 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy or Genesis and Exodus, why aren't those called the gospels? Because the gospels are the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the only three books we find that story told from beginning to end is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's why we call those four books the Gospels. They talk to us about the good news, which is Jesus Christ. The Gospel is put plainly to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.1. I love this passage. If you're ever wondering, what is the Gospel? Paul writes it out for us in this passage of Scripture. Let me read it for you. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So we're going to get reminded about what that gospel is. Which you received, in which you stand. Paul is talking to this church at Corinth, and he says, you've heard the gospel. Let me remind you again what it is. This is the gospel, he goes on to say, by which you are being saved. So this is the gospel. This is what it takes for you to be saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he goes on to say he kept appearing to all these different people. This is the good news of God. The gospel of God. This is God's revelation according to the scriptures. What are the scriptures that Paul's referring to? The Bible. Everything you have in the Bible is the scriptures. It's everything from the prophets to the the experiences that the the gospel writers wrote about and everything that um, that he's referring to that has talked about the coming Messiah. According to the scriptures... This is the good news that calls us, changes us, and saves us. Now, why was Paul so infatuated with the gospel of God? I have one reason. I think it's right. It's because he was radically changed by it. Paul the Apostle, also called Saul, was a persecutor of the church. His job... He loved it. How many, of you, how many people do you think love their jobs? you want to take a stab at this? Worldwide, do you know how many people love doing their jobs? 18%. 18% of people love doing their jobs. 
Do you know Paul persecuted the church and he was one of the 18%? He loved it. It got him out of bed in the morning. He loved destroying the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, he writes about it in Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is Paul the Apostle talking about his former life. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people so extremely, what's the next word, church? Zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul was zealous to kill the church. Literally, I might add. Paul loved to see people die, people jailed, people lose their job, people have their families broken up. He loved it. He was zealous for it. It drove him. And then God changed Paul's life. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. He was on the road to go persecute the church even more. God knocks him off the horse. He has a vision of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, you take on my church, you take on me. Jesus shows up and changes Paul's life. Paul becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and his whole purpose changes. In Galatians 1, down in verse 23, he says, the only, uh, the only one hearing it said, he who used to, uh, the only were hearing it said, oh, they only were hearing it said, sorry, I can't read. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul made it his whole life about telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went on three missionary journeys, and in the end, church tradition said he was killed for preaching the gospel. One of the places that Paul, he was half Jewish and he was half Gentile, so he could get into a lot of different places. They kind of worked on a hierarchy system in his day. So he got to go into synagogues and preach the Gospels. He got to go into some of the Gentile areas and preach the Gospels. One of the, ways, one of the areas that he got to go into was the Oropagus. Do you know what the Oropagus is? This is amazing. How many of you have been to Greece before? Anybody been to Greece? Athens? All right. You may have seen the Oropagus. The Oropagus is actually at the foot of the Acropolis. So if you've been to the Acropolis and you've looked out, you've probably looked over the Oropagus. The Oropagus is a place in Paul's day, uh, it literally is called a big piece of rock. That's what the word means, Oropagus. Here's a picture of it. This is where, um, this is what's left of it, what it looks like today. But this is where the learned scholars of Paul's day would get together and they would debate things. Here you could talk about, I looked this up, it's interesting. There's a function as a court for trying homicide, religious matters, and also cases involving arson or damage to olive trees. So if that was you, you could go to the Oropagus and you could make your case known. It also, for those of you that love, uh, um, that love uh, uh, mythical stuff, Ares was supposed to have been tried here by the gods for murdering Poseidon's son. All right? So if you, if you like that kind of thing, this was known as a place where that would happen. The Romans came in and they stole all the Greek gods and renamed them. That's why you have Neptune and Pluto and Mars in the sky. This is one of the places they renamed. They didn't like Poseidon, so they named it Mars Hill. Mars was the god of war. And so they named this Mars Hill. This is the Oropagus, and you can see the Acropolis if you're kind of looking the other direction. Here's a picture of the Acropolis from the Oropagus, so you kind of get an idea where it's at. This is the place where Paul goes in Athens, stands up in front of all these learned people, and he says, I have something to challenge you with. And here's what he says in Acts 17, verse 22. 
Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. Does that sound familiar? How many people do you think in the world today think that they're religious? A lot. Right? There's very few people that they would say they're not religious. Atheism is, is not as popular as you think it is. Most people would say they are religious. Same in Paul's day. Same idea. You are very religious. Lots of packages, lots of religions, lots of different belief systems. And what I love about Paul is he admits it here. He says, listen, I'm not going to argue with you. You say you're religious, let's call you religious. But remember, religion doesn't equal right. Lots of people are religious today. They might have been religious, but they needed the gospel in order to be right. So Paul could identify with this gathering. I love it. These folks were followers of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. By the way, this was like 300 years before Christ. So all of these things were being passed down. These people loved to gather, and they loved to talk about all of these different Platonic ideas, all these different, how many, how many uh, uh, angels could dance on the head of a needle. This is where this kind of conversation takes place. They loved the fact that they were learned. They were smart. And Paul could identify with them because Paul was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Do you know who Gamaliel is? One of the most learned Judaistic scholars of his day, respected by both Jews and Gentiles. Very smart. Paul had the opportunity to be trained by one of the smartest professors of his day. And so he had every right to stand up among these people and talk to them about where they were at. Not only that, but Paul had been in their shoes not long ago. Paul had been blinded like they were, and so and convinced he was right. So he knew this audience because he was like one of them not that long ago. In fact, I would even say Paul respected these group, this group of people. Read on. For as I passed along, Paul says, and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I love the fact that he doesn't correct them right out. He simply acknowledges their pluralism. This is pluralism acknowledged. I know you are a society that worships all different kinds of gods. No judgment call here. In fact, on the way here, I noticed that there was an idol, a worship center. And you've got worship centers to Athena and, Play- and, uh, uh, and uh, Zeus and Apollo and all of these worship centers. And I noticed that on this one statue, there's no name at the bottom. And the reason there is is because maybe, just maybe, you missed one. And so in order to make sure that the gods don't get angry with you, you have one god, one worship center, erected so that you don't anger any of the gods. You love being accepted. You love being pluralistic. Just in case we miss one, no altar, or no name on the altar. He acknowledges their pluralism. Then he goes on. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. This is pluralism questioned. Here's why. Paul is saying, if your God really exists, my God gave life to him. Look at what he says here. 
The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by men. He is Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he's not knocking them for what they believe. He's simply saying to them, you are looking at all these different gods, thinking to yourself, maybe they're all, or one or more of them are, are right. So we don't want to miss anything. And Paul says, let's just talk about the God that I serve. The God that I serve made everything in the world, including your gods. He also talks about the invisible God. Now, in the early church, people called Christianity, Christians atheists. And the reason they did is because they would worship a God where there was no idol. There was no picture of this God. I mean, you, there was no image made up of God. And the reason why there's no image of God made up is because, why is there no image of God made up? Why is there no image of God in this auditorium? Because the commandments, Ten Commandments said, do not make an image of me. Do you know the Ark of the Covenant? How many of you know the Ark of the Covenant is? The Ark of the Covenant, on top of that, was a thing called the mercy seat. Are you familiar with the mercy seat? The mercy seat was a throne. It was a chair. On the mercy seat is where your God is supposed to go. What was on the mercy seat? Nothing. It was an empty throne. If they were in a parade with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, all the nations around them would laugh because Dagon was half God, or was half man, half fish. Or you could carry around an Asherah pole. Or you could make an image of Baal. But there was no image of God. And that's on purpose. God says no images because we do not worship idols. We worship the one true God. Paul starts explaining this to them. He's saying this God, uh, the idea that God doesn't need to be served is because he is not trite and insecure like your gods. Your gods become idols. You put bananas at their feet. You put food at their feet. It rots after a couple days and you move on. You sacrifice meat to it and then sell it cheap in the market to people who want to buy meat that's been sitting out in the sun for a couple of days. All those gods you give stuff to and then remove it. Our God doesn't need to be served by anyone. He doesn't need any sacrifices. He doesn't need any food. He doesn't even need to make you, get you to carve an image of him so you can explain him to somebody else. Our God, the one true God, needs nothing. He's not served by human hands like all these other gods. He goes on to say, and he made from one man, Adam, of course, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from any one of us. This is pluralism turned upside down. Here's why I say that. When you make an idol, let's say we're going to make an idol in here this morning. God, excuse me for a second. Let's say we're going to make an idol in here this morning. Uh, then we would take a vote as to where to put it, right? We could put it in the back corner. We could put it up front over here, right? How, do, how should we make the idol look? Oh, we can make it look like a man. We can make it look like a woman. How about half fish, half God? Choose. You can make an idol however you want. Put it in the, in, in the place where you want it to go. You can, you can determine uh, when it's open so people can come in and worship it. And when, when it's closed, people can't come in and worship it. You can decide what, to, what, what it represents. Maybe God of the air, God of fire, God of war. You can make all that up. This is your idol. You get to say whatever that idol would be, is going to become. Think of that. The power of making a God. Isn't that great? Paul says, you don't understand it. The one true God doesn't get made by us. He made you. 
He turns the tables on this incredibly. He's saying, you don't get to make an image of our God and decide where it is and when it's open and how to feed it. Our God made us. He determines where you live, how far your arm extends, what kind of influence you're going to have, how many kids you have, how long life you have. He determines when you're going to be sick, when you're going to be healthy, how much money you're going to have. He determines all of that. You don't determine who he is. He determines who you are. It's completely upside down. The God who we serve is completely sovereign. He doesn't need any of us to take care of him or to tell him what to do. The real God basically has already written your story, and I'm telling you, that is offensive. That is why people can't stand the narrowism of Christianity, because you're explaining to them a God who they have no power over. Explore the gods of this world. Every one of them are controlled. But the one true God, the living God, is not controlled. He's not fed by us. He's not told what to do by us. He does what he wants, and we are followers of his. Now listen, we're so used to this, we don't even think how offensive that is, because we have phrases like, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Think how offensive that is. God loves me. Okay, that's fine. He has a plan for my life? That is an offensive statement out the gate. Because who is God to tell me what his plan is for my life? Most people would rather have a God that they tell their plan for their lives. God determines your existence. You don't determine his. Paul is talking to a bunch of people that have already wrote their God's stories. Poseidon is God of the seas. Here's his idol. This is when you can visit and worship him. Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Here's how you worship her. Here's when you can visit her. Visiting times, nine to five. Here's Zeus, the king of the gods. Here's where he lives, Acropolis, on top of the mountain. If you want to worship Zeus, that's where you go to see him. And Paul is saying something completely different. He's saying, our God is nothing like that. Our God has written your story. You don't get to write his. He tells you where you're born, where you live, how far your reach will go into the world. Your destiny is not in your own hands. Your limits have been predetermined. He turns the table on them. And the reason he says this is all like this is verse 27. So that you will... No, back, back one, Hannah. I'm sorry. Back to verse 27. So that you will... What, church? You will seek God and perhaps feel your way toward him and find him. Do you know what that means? When you're not in control of your own destiny and you finally realize that, and you realize that God is controlling your destiny, wouldn't you like to have a conversation with him? Wouldn't you like to tell him how your heart is breaking? Wouldn't you like to ask him to help you through what comes next? You see, the reason why God is who God is and we are who we are is because if he's in control of my life, and I really believe that, I'm going to want to look for him, find him, and spend a lot of time with him. Paul goes on to say, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is pluralism challenged. 
We don't get to create a God who is palatable to our world. We don't create God in our image. God creates us in His. Listen, we don't even get to create a religion that ignores the one true living God. You can't tell Craig's story, my story, without including Beth and Craig's parents and my kids. You get to the part of the story where you say, why is Craig always broke? It's because I got four girls. There's a reason why things happen in my life. And there's a, there, there's a part of my story that goes on that if you understand it, you know more about me. And if you tell me your story, there are parts of it that you don't want to share, but they will tell me more about you because they get a little deeper than the surface level. All of those stories wrapped together make you who you are. God's story is revealed to us everything we need to know in Scripture. Every part of it points to who He is. That's why we are called to go to Scripture and find out who God is. We don't get to create a new book and say, this is who God is, should be. This is who, God, who we want God to be. We don't get to create a religion and stick a bunch of new verses in, in the Bible and say, this sounds better to me. We don't even get to go through Scripture and pick out the verses we like and leave the ones behind we don't like because all of them tell a little bit more about who God is. And until we really understand God, we'll never appreciate Him. We'll never love Him like we should. And we certainly will never trust them like we need to. All Scripture is given for our admonition, our benefit. In this church, we encourage you to read the Bible because the more you do, the more you'll know the one true living God. Don't take my word for it. In fact, anything I say here this morning, feel free to check up on me. I would love it. And Jesus Christ is the story of God You cannot tell God's story without including the essential part of Jesus. He goes on to say more about this. The times of ignorance. By the way, this is not stupidity. All right, This is lack of knowledge. Times of ignorance. Lack of knowledge, in other words. God has what, church? He has overlooked. He's let it go. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed. That is Jesus Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this same man from the dead. Now he does not mention Jesus' name, but who is he talking about? Who else has been raised from the dead? This is pluralism destroyed. Times of ignorance, God says, have been overlooked but now there is no room to overlook it because Jesus has been revealed. In Greece, the stories of Jesus have already come. Paul might as well have been all the way around the world and they've already heard about this man that rose from the dead. He says, but now. He says, there has been a visible revelation of the one true living God. Jesus has been revealed. There's no reason not to know the story of God when you hear about Jesus Christ. The background is this, is simply this. The gospel was already shaking the world upside down. The story of Jesus and his resurrection, his death and his resurrection was foolishness to people when they first heard it. For us, we see the cross all the time. We're very used to it, right? You may have a cross hanging around your neck. I mean, for everybody's heard the story of Jesus Christ, well, most people, uh, where we live, right? It's a very popular story. They've never heard it before. This was a group of people that were hearing, <laughs> hearing it for the very first time, and they were offended by it. It offended their intellectual Gnosticism. You mean to tell me I got to worship a God that died? And he rose from the dead? Yeah, that happens every day. 
There was a couple of foolish things about the story of Jesus. Number one, we worship a God who asphyxiated to death on a cross naked in front of a bunch of people on a hill. That's the God you're worshiping? Made no sense to them. In fact, there, is, uh, there was graffiti in Paul's day. Did you know that? One of the graffiti that we have found is in a cave in Greece. And this, in this cave, there's this picture of a cross holding half, half cow, uh, half man. See the cross there? This is actually, and there's a guy at the foot of the cross worshiping. And there's words at the bottom, like every graffiti would do. They'd put some words there. Do you want to know what those words mean? Translated, here's what those words mean. Aleximenos worships his God. How do you think the Greeks felt about worshiping a God who hung on a cross? They thought it was dumb, foolish. They made fun of it all the time. Aleximenos worships his God. And you know this because as soon as Paul started talking about death and resurrection from the dead, here's what the next verse says, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what did they do? Some mocked. Paul got unfriended by a bunch of people at Oropagus. Paul's drive was to risk looking foolish in front of these intellectuals. I I love this because Paul is talking to a bunch of people about something that happened a world away in Jerusalem. Paul is driven to go to this place called Athens in Greece and tell them the story of Jesus Christ. Church, let me just ask you one simple question. Were the people in Athens religious? Yes. Then why didn't Paul just let them be? Because their religion was wrong. Again, shocking in the culture in which we live. Just as shocking as it would have been for Paul. They already had their religion, but Paul knew they were were believing a lie. Paul was driven to tell them the truth, no matter how foolish it seemed to them. Why? Because everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Church, the reason we send missionaries out, the reason we, 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 we... do this in this place, the reason we we, we try and get out into our community, the reason we love on our neighbors is because everyone needs to hear about Jesus. Canadians need to hear about Jesus. Americans need to hear about Jesus. Muslims need to hear about Jesus. Hindus need to hear about Jesus. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. It is essential because Jesus is the story of God. If you want to know the one true living God, the story of God of the Bible, it necessarily has to include Jesus Christ. Because it's at Jesus Christ that the gospel gets very, very narrow. In Athens, on foreign soil, Paul is driven to tell the offensive story in the frame of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and his resurrection. But here's the good news. The verse doesn't end here. Here's what it goes on to say. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but church, others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. You can't control the response, but you can control your willingness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of God. That's why Paul later would write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, You may be sitting here and thinking to yourself, okay, Craig, fine. The God of the Bible has to include the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the whole story of God. 
Fine. That sounds extremely narrow. Fine. But what about people living in other countries that were brought up Muslim or Hindu? You only believe in Christianity because you live in the West and are descended from a Christian point of view. If you were born in a Muslim country, you would be Muslim. I want to tell you, that argument is only partially true. It's only partially true in that I may grow up to be a Muslim if I'm born in a Muslim country. But the question diverts the attention away from the basic question and turns it into a sociological argument. Do you know what I mean by that? That question turns it into a sociological argument. It still doesn't deal with the truth. It doesn't say, okay, Muslims get to be Muslims and not believe in Jesus Christ because they're Muslim and that's okay with them. No, 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 no. It doesn't deal with that. The question we're talking about this morning is, is Christianity too narrow? I'm trying to describe to you what Christianity is and tell you that you cannot have Christianity without including the gospel of Jesus Christ. That question doesn't deal with the basic question of God. That question assumes that all gods are the same. The real question is, who is God, and is he like the Bible describes? So I leave you with a couple of so what's. Number one, the story of God is the story of Jesus. You can't have one, can't have one without the other. You can't do it. This is God's story. No matter what you want it to be, it is what it is. And here are the essential parts. Just to boil it down to the essential parts. This is the essential part of who God is. The real true God. The God of the Bible. God's creation went awry in a human-implemented sin. We, receive a help, we received a helpless baby sent from God named Jesus in order to rescue us from the penalty of our own sin. God arrived in human flesh. We received a suffering Messiah, and we rejected him. Jesus suffered a real death, this Messiah, God's sent son, suffered a real death on the cross and shed real, perfect blood. God raised his only son in a real resurrection three days after he died. God offers a real promise of forgiveness of all our sins to all who believe in Jesus Christ. There is power in the story of Jesus Christ to live victoriously in this life, and there is a real resurrection to come for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those are the essential elements of the gospel. It's interesting, I was flipping through, I've asked forgiveness for this ever since, but I was flipping, flipping through Facebook the other day. Face, Facebook, awful. We need to redeem Facebook. And I saw an advertisement on there, and it was from uh, Islamic site that was trying to prove how much Christianity and Islam had in common. So they talked about Jesus. The Quran talks about Jesus a lot. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was this, Jesus was that. You see, it's not how much we have in common. It's the real story and how much you reject. Muslims reject that Jesus was the Son of God. Muslims reject that Jesus died on a cross. Muslims reject that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not how much we have in common. It's how much we reject. You cannot reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and call it the same story. If you think that's pretty narrow, let me tell you in Jesus' own words how he might say it. 
John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, Church, will you read this with me, please? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How narrow is that? Can you get to the Father any other way than through Jesus Christ? Not according to Jesus' own words. Jesus was the most narrow-minded of all of us in this. And it, it amazes me, we live in a pluralist agnostic society that loves Jesus but doesn't understand how intolerant he was. He said in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He called himself the door. He called himself the way. He called himself the truth. He called himself the life. He didn't give those titles to anyone else. Number two, thank God for keeping Christianity narrow. Why would I put that up there? Well, because every generation tries to redefine Christianity, and it drives me crazy, because I've lived through a couple generations already. And with the internet, it's even worse. Every new church that begins always tries to f- throw something really catchy and, ch- and cool up on their website. And they say stuff like, we're redefining church or we're redefining what it means to follow Jesus. Well, good for you. I don't want to redefine anything. I'd like to find out who the real God is, who the real Jesus is, and get into his story rather than developing a whole new story so he can fit into my little frame. It's offensive to me as a pastor, that every generation that comes up thinks that they got a brand new handle on Jesus. If you think you have a brand new handle on Jesus, you might just be a heretic. You probably are, because there's a lot of church history on whose shoulders we stand. And our generation doesn't suddenly come out of the womb and have enlightenment so that we figure out who the real Jesus is, who the real Christianity is. God is who God is. God has given us full revelation in Scripture. Creation screams about who he is. We talked about this already. And Jesus was his best illustration of who he is. If you've got to redefine any of that for this generation, you're walking down a very dangerous road. The word of the cross, I would say to them, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. By the way, that's why we wrestle at Village so much. We do not wrestle at Village to be right. We wrestle at Village to wade through all the muck of our culture to make sure that what we preach is accurate. We wrestle with the truth that we already have, and we try to get culture out of our minds so that we can give you the pure, unadulterated truth of the gospel every single Sunday. That's why we wrestle. Not to be right and to prove you wrong. Our goal is not to get in the way of the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Every generation is tempted to make a gospel a little more palatable to their culture. And let me read for you from Scripture how dangerous this is. Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven get that, should preach you, this is a literal angel from heaven. Even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach you a gospel contrary to the one you've already had preached to you, let him be cursed. As we have said before, so we say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Why? Because you cannot improve on the story of God. And if you think you can, you're walking down a very dangerous road. 
And any churches that do have already started down that road. Stick with it long enough and you'll watch them fall away. Number three, Christian or non-Christian, watch out for cultural mindless mantras. Here are some cultural mindless mantras. I'm an atheist because I could never believe in an all-powerful God that sees suffering, could stop it, but doesn't. That's a mindless cultural mantra. It's just something we throw out there to get you off your game. Number two, who are you to say that, I'm, that there's only one way? That's an arrogant thing to say. It's a mindless cultural mantra. Or here's another one. You only believe in Jesus because your family brainwashed you into it. Listen, those are silly things to say because they don't deal with the question. The question is, who is God? That simple, straightforward. Who is he? Is he like the Bible describes him to be? If he is, then we follow him. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pastor. We are called out in his name. He determines who we are. Our culture is like every other culture. It only tries to make the, the truth sound more foolish by popular vote. Here's a song I, I used to love. Ever heard God's Own Fool? We in our foolishness thought we were wise. He, op- he played the fool and he opened our eyes. We in our weakness believed we were strong. He became helpless to show we were wrong. So we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can, can tell. Believe the unbelievable. Come be a fool as well. Number four. The real scandalous question is not, why is Christianity so narrow? You want to know the real scandalous question? Why is Christianity so open? You know what that means? The thing that offends me most about Christianity probably offends you the most too. Can you believe I'm offended by Christianity? The thing that makes me so challenged is not how narrow Christianity is. It's how open it is. The inclusiveness of Christianity is far more offensive than the exclusivity of Christianity. There's a verse in the Bible that says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Acts 2.21, shall be saved. Literally in in the Greek, that means everyone who calls, everyone will be saved. Say it with me, church. It's great. Everyone who calls, everyone will be saved. Isn't that great? Hitler? Mussolini? Liars? Thieves? Cheats? Adulterers? All of them? You see, that's offensive. It's offensive to me that David was king, given all of those things, and blew it for some woman that he later killed his husband, and David's in, in heaven today. That's offensive. I haven't screwed up that bad. So David gets in there with me? Or Samson? Royal screw-up. Most of his life was just serving himself. Samson's in heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 11. That's offensive to me. Adulterers, cheats, like David and Zacchaeus, murderers and liars, like David and Samson, failures and betrayers, like Peter and every one of the disciples. They all failed. And all of them make it. Do you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? (coughs) Jeffrey Dahmer was a dregs of, of cultural society. He invited boys over to his house, killed them, did horrible things to them before and after they were dead. Ate pieces of their body, kept them in his fridge. Terrible, terrible human being, deserves death. Dahmer went to prison. 
And while he was in prison, you may not know this, Christianity Today did an article where he met a guy who was saved, a guy witnessed to him. Jeffrey Dahmer made a profession of salvation and was baptized in jail. Jeffrey Dahmer might be in heaven. How does it make you feel? Have you done a little better than Jeffrey Dahmer? One famous professor said about that, if Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to go. Why is it that Hitler, Mussolini, and Paul, the killer of the church, all get to go to heaven? Why do they all get the blessings of the gospel? Why do they all get forgiveness? Because it is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to save even those furthest from grace. Their rescue only speaks more about the power of God than it does about our sin. It speaks more about God's incredible grace than it does about our incredible failures. Look what it did in Paul's own life. When I get to heaven, there are three things that are going to surprise me. I heard somebody say this once. One, I'm going to be surprised at who's there. Two, I'm going to be surprised at who's not there. And three, I'm going to be surprised that I'm there. Because I'm going to look into the face of the one who loved me so that he went to that cross for me who took on every sin I harbor in this evil, fallen heart and forgave me, no questions asked. And I'm going to be standing in heaven looking eyeball to eyeball with him and I'm going to think to myself, I don't deserve this. See, the offensive thing about Christianity is not that it's too narrow. It's that it's too inclusive. It's too open. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's too wide, it's too available, it's too foolish, it's too inviting, it's too powerful. But I leave you with this, church. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to the end of this conversation this morning. It's a hard one, but it was really good to spend some time together looking into your word, walking through Paul's acknowledgement of a pluralistic Gnostic society, realizing to ourselves maybe that the world in which we live has way, way a lot in common with where Paul was in his day. I pray, Father, that you would give us really wisdom beyond our years, wisdom beyond our fallen minds, so that we would be able to understand what it takes to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So we'd be patient with those around us who are perishing like you are patient with them, not wanting any to, to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Give us boldness to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ because it saves those who would come. It saves those who would call. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone will be saved. And so, Father, help us to enter into our lost world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ not ashamed but boldly proclaiming who you really are and what you can really do in the lives of those who would really seek you may you change this generation with the gospel that still changes lives in Jesus name I pray amen